24. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. That will be found on page 975 of the Red Pew Bible. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. It's good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad that you've come our way. Thank you so much for being a part of our worship assembly this morning. One of the best things we do, the best thing we do each week is to gather together and to offer praise and worship and honor to our God. We're thankful for the men that have worshiped and, and led us in worship this morning. And uh, we're thankful that you're here to worship God with us. Uh, three weeks from today, as was prayed about just a few moments ago by Brother Will, three weeks from today begins our gospel meeting with Mike Bestel. Uh, that will begin on September the 17th, and he's going to be delivering sermons this year from the book of Galatians. So Mike is a preacher from Midland, Texas. He's not a stranger to most of us uh, in the congregation here, uh, but he's going to be speaking about liberty in Jesus Christ and his gospel. There are some flyers and handouts in the foyer. There's some advertisements online. Be sure to share some of those with your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones. We'd love for uh, the building to be full for each lesson that Brother Mike's going to be preaching. He'll be preaching Sunday all day, uh, and then Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, as we traditionally have done with our gospel meetings. So please be keeping that in your prayers and keep it in your plans. Three weeks from today. It's not very long. It's hard to believe it's already almost September, isn't it? Where did the time go? But I'm also thankful. Uh, Angie and I spent the week in Tennessee, or at least a lot of this week, and a lot of you have asked, you know, well, was it cooler in Tennessee? I don't know many places you couldn't go that it wouldn't be cooler um, than it is in Texas, maybe Arizona, but that's about it. But yes, it was a good, uh, good trip, but boy, we're glad to be home. There's nothing like being at home and with the people of God, and we love you and glad to be with you. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit singular. It's not the fruits, plural. Fruit. When we serve God, when we follow God, when we allow God to have His way in our hearts, in our lives, there is certain fruit that will be produced. And the fruit is, according to Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This morning I want us to spend some time talking about joy. It's not just an addendum. It's not just an optional item. You could take it or leave it. If God is having his way in your life, joy is going to be one of the products. It's going to be a fruit that is exhibited in your life, just like love and faithfulness and self-control and all these other qualities. If God's really having his way in our lives, joy is going to be something that characterizes us. I've read the bulletin and I've talked and spoken to a lot of you just in the last couple of days. And I know that it's hard sometimes to see the joy in life. I know that circumstances and difficulties and illnesses and people that disappoint us, it makes us sad, it makes us miserable, it makes us hurt. 
And maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, John, the fruit of the Spirit's joy, but that's for other people, not for me. I would say to you this morning, when we read about the fruit of the Spirit being love and joy in this case, what God is saying is this. It doesn't mean that there aren't times in our lives when we struggle. Quite the contrary, as we'll see in just a moment. Even Jesus, when he went to the cross, despised the shame, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It doesn't mean that we are always enjoying the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Paul and Silas were put in a Roman prison in the stocks, and yet, and yet, they, as Christian men, were singing hymns and praises to God at midnight, Acts chapter 16, verse 25. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being joy, basically what we're talking about is this, as a matter of practical application. It means that we don't go through life acting like we're weaned on a sour pickle. It means that we're not always in the doldrums of despair and we're not always trying to bring other people down. And some people kind of perversely get joy from doing that. I want to poke holes in what other people are doing that's good. Or I want to point out the negative and the worst case scenario in every situation. The fruit of the Spirit, brothers and sisters and friends, is joy. And because we have joy as the fruit of the Spirit, we can live in a way that encourages and builds up other people. That's the application. Now, the question that comes to my mind immediately is this, okay? Do I just have to manufacture this all by myself? If I'm supposed to be an encourager and I'm not supposed to be Mr. Negative Nelly, the the Debbie Downer, the person who's always striving to, to, to bring others down because I feel so bad in my own heart and my own life, If I'm not supposed to be that, why? What motivates me to do that? And that's where this lesson is gonna go this morning. What's the source of our joy? Because all of us face trials, all of us face circumstances that we'd rather not have to face. We go through things that we'd really rather not have to go through. Why does God say, if I'm having my way in your heart, John, then joy is gonna be the result? The word joy, it's a noun, or the word rejoice, which is a verb, those two words are found 132 times in your New Testament. 132 times. Jesus says in John 15, verse 11, he says, these things I've spoken to you, apostles, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, the Bible tells us that when we serve and please God, when we listen to the words of Jesus and put them into practice in our lives, there is a promise of fullness of joy. It's not just an extra, it's not just an add-on to your life. Joy is the motive and the reason and the goal for basically everything we do. I want joy and that's why I'm going to make the choices I make and that's why I'm gonna pursue what I pursue. So the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Where does that come from? Three concepts, three thoughts to ponder this morning. Number one, a parable to ponder. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to this passage, but I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. As we think about the fruit of the Spirit being joy and God saying to you and me, I want you to be the kind of people who are not always trying to depress and discourage and tear down and be suspicious of other people. I don't want that in your life. 
That's not where that, that's not where, where, where my work is going. What does God want us to do? He wants us to replace that with something else. Matthew 13, verse 44, consider the parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, these are the words of Jesus, by the way, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. What's the kingdom of heaven like, Jesus? It's like a man who finds treasure in a field and he rejoices over it. You see that? In his joy. And then he goes and he ventures everything. I want you to think about what's happening here in this parable. Man goes, finds a hidden treasure, covers it up, and he goes home and he tells his wife, honey, put the house up for sale. Well, that's strange. Why would we do that? Because I'm gonna buy a field. Put the cars up for sale. Why? Because I'm going to buy a field. He goes and he piles up everything that he has and he ventures everything so that he can buy this field, so that he can have this field. Why? Because there's treasure in the field. And so for his joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has. There are some things we learn about joy in this passage. There are some things we learn about God's joy in our hearts that we can derive from this passage. Number one, notice. Joy is about our perception of value. It's about seeing something or someone who is precious. This man finds, maybe it's gold coins, maybe it's diamonds, who knows, but he finds treasure and it's buried, it's hidden in a field and he looks at that treasure and he knows what he's looking at. He sees the value. He doesn't have to take it to anybody else. He knows that what he sees is precious. Question. What's the treasure that Jesus is talking about here? When Jesus talks about finding treasure hidden in a field, what treasure does he have in mind? When I was a younger preacher, I preached the parable this way. I said, well, the treasure is the church because it starts with the kingdom of heaven is like and yes, I do believe there are blessings that we receive from being a part of the church. There are things you can get from the church that you can't get any other, anywhere else. That you, there are blessings you can receive from the church, from being a part of the church, that you cannot receive in your life any other way. But I don't believe that's what Jesus has in mind here. The treasure, what is the treasure? What is it that this man sees that he's really ready to go and sell everything to possess? As you read the rest of the Bible, the Bible says things like this, Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Or Psalm 37 verse 4, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. Or Jesus saying in John 15 11, my joy can be in you. Rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. You know what the treasure is, brothers and sisters? Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else about this lesson, listen to this. Our joy, our chief joy is to be found in our relationship with God. That's what the Bible is telling us. God is a God who has created us. He wants to know us and he wants us to know him. And when we say, God, thanks for all the blessings and we don't really know God, 
It's like somebody giving a birthday party for their child and their child takes all the presents and says, I sure do love these presents, but they sure don't love the person who gave the presents. And sometimes we treat God like that. We put our joy in the things and the stuff and the real estate that God gives us and we really don't know the God who's given them. Jesus says, this guy, he looks in a field and he finds buried hidden treasure and he sees the value of knowing God. And that's what he's willing to go sell everything to have. And that's what Jesus is challenging us to do in our lives, to sell everything so that we can know God. You say, well, does that mean literally sell everything? Maybe. If it's getting in the way of your heart, knowing and serving God, absolutely get rid of it. What Jesus is saying though is there's nothing better than having a relationship with God through him, through Jesus Christ, through what he did for us at the cross. There is nothing in this world that is gonna provide more joy and more contentment and more satisfaction than God himself. In Jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah said this, let not the mighty man glory in his strength and his might. Let not the rich man glory in his wealth. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let him who glories glory in this, that he knows and understands me, says the Lord. God wants you to know him personally, deeply, richly. God wants you to know and have a relationship with him. That's the treasure. And this man finds an opportunity to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he, 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 he goes and he sells everything that he has. And that brings us to observation number two. Treasure number one is in the perception, seeing what's really valuable. But number two is this, you can't have everything. Are you listening to me? We live in a society that says you can have all that you want, everything you want. You just got to work hard. You just got to manage your time and you got to manage your budget and you've got to be a good steward, but you can have everything. Jesus says, no, you can't. You want a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Do you see that as treasure? Do you see that as infinitely valuable? You can't have everything. That's why before anybody was ever told to be baptized in scripture, they were told to repent. Acts chapter two, verse 38. That's why John the baptizer, when people came and said, what shall we do that we might inherit the kingdom of God? John the baptizer told, for example, the tax collectors to stop collecting more than what they were, what they were owed and told the, the Roman soldiers to be content with their wages. Why? Because you can't have everything. Write this down if you're taking notes. It is a life principle and it will help you spiritually. You cannot say yes to one thing without saying no to a lot of others. You just can't. You can't say yes to any one thing without saying no to a lot of others. This man sees the treasure, values the treasure, a relationship with God, and he says, I'm gonna sell everything so that I can have that field, so that I can have God. Where does our joy come from, brothers and sisters and friends? Does it come from our houses and our cars and our lands? Does it come from our families? Does it come from our church family? I submit this morning that our chief joy, our ultimate joy is grounded and rooted in God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's a parable to ponder. If the Lord were speaking directly to me, 
And he was saying, John, there are some things in your life that you're going to have to get rid of so that you can know me. Is God really my chief joy? Second, this morning, an example to follow. Take your Bible and open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to look at verse 2. At the end of Hebrews 11, which is faith's hall of fame, the people that saw the reward and thought that they were going uh, to they were going to obey God so that they could receive rewards, and everybody in Hebrews 11 does that. They see a reward, a promise that God's made, and then they decide that they're going to obey God so that they can have the reward. Then in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, the Bible tells us this: You and I are to run our race, Hebrews 12 verse 1, and we're to do it in a certain way. We are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what? For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Observation number one. Jesus looked to who God is and what God does for his joy. When it came to finding joy, Jesus looked to who God is and what God does for his joy. Jesus placed his greatest joy in God and in knowing God and in serving God and in pleasing God. And so the passage says that when they nailed him to the cross, when they drove those spikes through his hands and feet and they placed him suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus was looking to the joy that was set before him. What kind of joy do we have in mind here, Lord? The joy of being exalted to the right hand of God. That's what the passage says. The joy of being able to save you and me and the joy of having an intimate, real, genuine relationship with you and me. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because Jesus put his greatest joy in God, his treasure. Jesus was looking forward to being reunited, if you want to say it this way, with his heavenly father. In John 17, verse 24, he prayed that God might glorify and give us and help us to experience the love that he and his father have had from before the foundation of the world. Jesus spoke of joy in the shadow of the cross. Again, John 15, verse 11. Jesus went to the cross because he saw joy in who God is and what God has promised. And then observation number two, as you look at this passage, the cross itself was not an enjoyable experience for Jesus, was it? The cross itself was not an enjoyable experience. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being joy, sometimes I think we misunderstand the idea that everything about Christianity ought to be enjoyable. Everything about life ought to be enjoyable. And life's just not that way. It's not that way for any of us. Christianity and serving God is not always, in the strictest, most immediate sense, an enjoyable experience. Look at what it says. He endured the cross. He said, there's a promise at the other end of this suffering, and I want the joy that comes from obtaining that promise. But the suffering itself, I don't want to do it. Remember what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was looking to the joy set before him, and that's what helped him endure the cross, despising the shame, it says. 
The shame of the cross was not something to be enjoyed, but rather something to be endured for the sake of the joy set before him. And observation number three, what we're willing to endure shows the worth of the object of our joy. Let me say that again. What you're willing to endure shows the worth of the object of your joy. When I was younger and much more foolish, I decided I was going to take a group of kids from the church where I was preaching up in East Texas to Six Flags in Arlington. You guys been to Six Flags in Arlington? It was about that hot out, outside that day. It was about 100, 105, something like that. And I took all these kids and there was me and just a, maybe one or two other adult chaperones and I had check-in times at, during the day. And so as the day went on, you know, the kids are getting sweatier and they're getting hotter, hotter and they're red in the face. And there's this one little girl, probably about eight years old, that comes and sits down on the bench next to me at check-in time, about 4 p.m. I was ready to go. You know, 4 p.m., I've had enough. I've ridden all the roller coasters I want to ride. I've done all the things I want to do. I'm ready to go home. And I was kind of hoping the kids were going to be saying the same thing. This little eight-year-old girl comes and sits next to me on the bench, and she pulls off her shoe and sock. And she has got the biggest, reddest blister that I think I've ever seen on any human being's foot. And she says, Mr. John, my foot kind of hurts. <laughs> I said, I could see that. I said, you're probably ready to go, aren't you? Oh, no, Mr. John, no, I'm, I'm going back to ride whatever ride she was going to ride. What she's willing to endure proves how much she values what she's about to partake in, what she's about to do. Do you like being at the amusement park? Do you like riding the rides? Do you enjoy those kinds of things? Then you'll suffer through a lot of the other unpleasantness so that you can obtain that. When Jesus went to the cross, brothers and sisters and friends, he is showing us the infinite worth and value of God himself. He's saying there is nothing that this world has to offer that is more valuable than God. And pleasing God and serving God and obeying God, there's nothing else I'd rather do with my life, even in my death, Jesus says, than serving and pleasing God because of the promises that God makes and because of who God is. God is worthy. And just like a blister on a little girl's foot shows you how much she really wants to ride that roller coaster, the cross shows you how worthy God is. And my question for you this morning is this. Is that how you think? When you think about life and you think about the things you're enduring and you think about the things that you do, and I hope you do serve God with your life. When you think about the things that you do to serve God, and the burdens you have to bear in doing that. Do you think about the fact that I'm showing and I'm demonstrating the worth of God by what I endure and the way that I endure it? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. I have joy in God and in His promises. If you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews 12, I want you to back up a couple of passages with me very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10, as he, as he begins this discussion, Hebrews chapter 10, and I want you to look at verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32, and read with me if you would, beginning in Hebrews 10, 32. It says, Hebrews 10, 32, but recall, brethren, the former days when, after you were, were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He's writing to Christians that have been through some hard times because they belong to Jesus. Listen to what he says. 
He says in verse 33 of Hebrews 10, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you, watch this, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, Christians, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. Brothers and sisters and friends, our joy is in God and in God's promises. And that means that much of what happens to us in this life is difficult and painful. And what's happening as we suffer and we go through the difficulty and the pain of serving God is that we're proving how much God is worth. We're proving the joy that we actually have in God and in his promises. You have need of endurance, the Hebrews writer says. He's not saying you need all these burdens taken away from you. He says you need to hold on. And that's where Hebrews 11 comes from. You need to copy and emulate all these men and women of faith throughout the centuries that have done just what you're doing. Look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. As you look at it, example after example of people that heard promises from God, let's begin in verse 24. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Hebrews eleven twenty five, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There's an example to follow. Moses, Jesus, these ancient Christians, they looked at the promises of God, they looked at who God is and thought about what God does and they said, my joy, my treasure is gonna be in God. I'm gonna follow him because I believe him. I believe his words are true and I believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so I'm gonna be willing to suffer and I'm willing to go through whatever life throws at me, whatever the devil can do to me. I'm going to endure it with faith because I'm looking to the reward. I'm looking to the promises of God. Next, as we think about joy, four very specific applications of vision to embrace. Four very specific applications as you think about the fruit of the Spirit in your life being joy. It's one thing to just say, you know what, I'm going to try to encourage others and I'm going to try to lift others up and I don't want to poke holes and, and, and burst anybody's balloon. I don't want to throw cold water on anybody's, uh, anybody's fire, anything like that. What we're talking about with the fruit of the Spirit being joy is we're talking about having a real and a deep and a rich relationship with God. That manifests itself in how we treat other people. And what we do when we interact with our brethren, with people in the world. Four applications. Number one, brothers and sisters and friends, we need as the people of God to go back to the scriptures and read what they have to say about the greatest joy imaginable. You know what the greatest joy imaginable is? Not the streets of gold, not the mansion over the hilltop, the greatest joy imaginable is God himself. Knowing God, having a relationship with God, he is the greatest joy imaginable. Psalm 16, verse 11, at your right hand, O God, are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is the fullness 
of joy. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about how you Christians, you love Jesus Christ even though you haven't seen him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible. It's possible to rejoice in Jesus, to rejoice in God, never having seen them with your own eyes. But we believe by faith that God is the greatest being, the greatest thing that exists. In fact, God wants to bless us so much that he gave us the greatest thing that we could ever possibly receive. You know what that is? Himself. He gave us himself. He said, I want to know you. I want to relate to you. I want to have a relationship with you. God is the gr greater than any joy imaginable. Secondly, application. You and I, we ought to rejoice, brothers and sisters and friends, when we see God's grace at work. When we see the goodness and the grace of God at work. Acts chapter 11, verse 23, there was a church in Antioch that was converting Gentiles and the apostles sent Barnabas to go see what was going on because we're not really sure about the things we're hearing from Antioch. And so Barnabas goes up to Antioch and Acts eleven twenty-three 23 says that Barnabas saw the grace of God and he was glad. We need more of that spirit among the people of God that when we see the goodness of God, when we see the grace of God at work, that we can be glad about that. Third John verse four, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Do you rejoice when people do the right thing? Do you rejoice when God is honored? It's about the fruit of the spirit in your life. Application number three, you and I ought to rejoice in this. God gives every one of us an opportunity to be a channel of his blessing to others. If God really is the source of our joy, if he really is the one from which all of our joy derives, then we can rejoice in being a channel, a conduit of God's blessing in the lives of others. And in fact, the Bible makes promises like this. In Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the reason why he says that is because we become more like Jesus when we give. And because we're showing God's grace and mercy and blessing to others in their lives when we give. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the Bible talks about the grace of giving. And it says that when we resolve that we're going to be generous and kind and, and, and we're going to be givers, the Bible says God's going to re resupply us constantly so that we always have something to give because God wants us to live our lives that way. It's a life of joy, not a life of suspicion and always wondering what the other person's motives are, but a life of generosity and a life of showering God's blessing and grace to others. Fruit of the Spirit's joy. And then finally, we ought to hold on to the promises of God because life is tough. And there are some things that really discourage us and really cause us angst and pain. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, conduct yourselves here in this world as strangers and pilgrims. You're going somewhere else. This world is not your home. God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And there are a lot of things that don't make sense to us and a lot of things that happen that we would rather not happen and a lot of things that we don't know how to navigate and how to get out of 
but we hold on to those promises of God. And even in the darkest moments of our lives, even when, for example, Christians lose loved ones, just as an example, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says we mourn, we sorrow, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope because we hold on to the promises of God. Do you rejoice in God? Do you find your chief joy in having a relationship with him and knowing him? Do you even know what we're talking about? Knowing God and relating to God and, and being in a covenant with God, do you know about those things? That's what life is. And that's where our joy comes from. Maybe we can help you this morning because you've been hearing the gospel and you've been hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ and you're ready to make the decision because you know that becoming a child of God, having a relationship with God begins with putting your trust and your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins and confessing his name and repenting of your sin and being baptized for the remission of your sins. You know that's what you need to do and you know that baptism is the point at which you become a Christian. It's the point at which you enter in to that relationship with Jesus Christ. If we can help you do that this morning, there's no better time or place than right here and right now to put on Christ in baptism. Or maybe you need to respond, you need to respond and ask for prayers. Whatever we can help you with, heaven's invitation is yours. While together we stand and while we sing.